0: There are times when we feel stuck in our communications, that no matter what we say or how we plead our case, we make zero headway with the other person. We're so fixated on what we need and want, we forget to consider the other person and their needs and wants. What are some ways that we can turn that around and create a situation where everyone gets what they need? Welcome to episode 13 of How Can I Say This, where we talk about how to find the right words when words escape us. I'm your host, Beth Below. Thank you so much for joining me. This is going to be time well spent because my guest offers us some awesome insights on how to connect on a meaningful level with someone, even a two-year-old, and have a persuasive conversation. Be sure to stick around after the conversation for a few action items you can take to help you have more productive interactions with the people in your life. I'm pleased to welcome today's guest, Kwame Christian. Kwame is director of the American Negotiation Institute, where he puts on workshops designed to make difficult conversations easier. As an attorney and mediator with a bachelor's of science in psychology, a master of public policy, and a law degree, Kwame brings a unique multidisciplinary approach to the topic of conflict management and negotiation. He's the author of Nobody Will Play With Me, and his TEDx talk, Finding Confidence in Conflict, was the most popular TED talk on the topic of conflict in 2017. He also hosts the top negotiation podcast in the world, Negotiate Anything. He's also been my repeat guest on my other podcast, The Introvert Entrepreneur, and I'll include links to those shows on the page for this episode at HowCanISayThis.com. Hi, Kwame. Welcome to How Can I Say This? I've... Spoken with you on the Introvert Entrepreneur podcast. It is great to have you in this new
1: venture. It's great to be here. And thank you for creating another one of my favorite podcasts.
0: Oh, yay. <laughs> I accept that compliment with a lot of humility. So thank you.
1: No, <laughs> well, My pleasure. Veronica and I talk about it all the time. Oh, awesome.
0: And Veronica was just on, on episode eight. So I'm going to include a link to that since you mentioned her. So shout out to Veronica Cravener and our discussion about interest, needs and wants. So I want to jump in with you about your new venture, which is a new book. And I just would like to open it up by you telling us, tell us about it and what the core message that you want to communicate through that book is.
1: Yeah. So the title is Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Find Confidence in Conflict. And I know it's a bit of a a deviation from what a typical negotiation book would be called, but I wanted to make this a a pretty personal thing. Uh, Because when I reached out to my listeners uh, last year before my TED Talk, I wanted to figure out what really were their concerns? What do they want to learn more about? And so I created this survey and was shocked to find that the things that people were concerned about weren't strategic or tactical. They they were emotional. So they said that mm-hmm. they feel a lot of fear and anxiety before and during these conversations. They don't feel confident when it comes to difficult conversations. And lastly, they don't know what to say when they're in the middle of these conversations. <laughs> and so it was, it was really surprising for me as a lawyer because I, I wanted to get in the nitty-gritty, but it was exciting for me because my true academic love is psychology. So my degree is in psychology, and I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And so really with this book, what I'm doing is I'm sharing my story of how I use the, the fundamentals of cognitive behavioral therapy to help me get over my fears and anxiety when it came to difficult conversations. So the the title comes from an experience growing up in rural Ohio, small town called Tiffin, Ohio. And um, the joke I would always say is that there were there were four black people in Tiffin, me, my mom, my dad, my brother. <laughs> and um, <laughs> on on top of being so different, we were. I'm also a first generation Caribbean American. So when I was younger, since my parents happened to teach me how to talk, I had a really strong accent. Uh, Now I can Mm -hmm. I bring it out as necessary. (laughs) But um, at the time, it was just made me really different. So I remember in first grade, it was recess time, and I wanted to find some friends to play with. So I went to one group and said, hey, can I play with you? And they said no. Then I went to another group. Can I play with you? They said no. Another group, can I play with you? They say no. And so that just happened the entire time, trying to find somebody to play with me. And then recess ended, and I was just burst into tears, just devastated, felt so lonely. And I I made a vow that day, like, this will never, ever, ever happen again. And so because of that, I went on a a friendship offensive. (laughs) And so I became the friendly guy. I made a lot of friends, became really popular, but it came with a cost. It made me really gun-shy when it came to difficult conversations because I felt I worked too hard to create these friendships. I'm not going to risk it. So I became a people pleaser, a pushover. So with the book, I share that story and share the uh, techniques and tactics that I utilized on myself to get over that and become more confident. And so it's very exciting for me now to have the opportunity with this book to show people, first of all, how they can overcome their fears and then giving them a simple, technique that they can use in any negotiation, whether it's in the boardroom or in the kitchen table.
0: That sounds brilliant. And my heart was breaking as you were describing that when you play with me No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was rough. But maybe who I am today so I can't be too upset about it now
0: exactly there's a gift that that came through that and what would you say i mean if you can go back to that childhood self it sounds like part of the mobilization was that is never going to happen again which is mm-hmm probably a little tinged with, I don't know, anger, or I don't even know, I don't want to put an emotion on you that may or may not be there. But what was your intention, I guess, you know, and and what was it that helped you to make that pivot from, you know, pariah to popular,
1: basically? Yeah, yeah. So I think what it was, was kind of resentment. Um, yeah. for no reason, just being an outcast, just because I was different. And I don't think the kids meant anything negative by it. I'm just very different. You know, mm-hmm. that, that was the reality. But, um, when the, the teacher made an announcement saying, everybody you need to play with, um, you need to include everybody, that type of stuff. I, I just said to myself, I don't need your help. I'm going to do this myself. People are going to love me. You know, mm-hmm. that was it. And I surrounded myself with friends really as a defense mechanism. And, and what I found is that a lot of times our greatest strengths are the, the, the genesis of our greatest weaknesses. And so for me, even though I, I was really popular, and I, I when I tell you this, Beth, it was when I was going through um, in high school, and we had a graduating class of like 55. I knew everybody in the school by name, and they knew me by name every 100%. Um, it was really excessive. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I thought it was such an asset. And it's almost like you can be blinded by your own success in that way, mm-hmm. where you, uh, it's like, oh, this is good. Why, why would it be a problem? But then seeing clearly how it uh, became a problem with these relationships, uh, you know, eventually it hit that something needed to change. And, and I think the reality was, I knew that if I wanted to be successful, there are going to be times where there's going to be conflict. There's going to be friction. It's not a bad thing. Right. And understanding that there's a big difference between being liked and being respected was huge. Um, and then changing my mindset around difficult conversations to recognize that conflict is an opportunity mm-hmm. and we can use it to strengthen and maintain relationships that are important to us. And we can use it also to remove malignant relationships. Both are good outcomes. Yep. And you can use it as an opportunity to improve these relationships one way or another. Absolutely.
0: Well, I'm going to I'm bookmarking um, right here for the world that we're going to have another conversation sometime in the near future about people pleasing. Yeah. Just to, to <laughs> I wish we could go more into that right now. But I've I've got another agenda for us a little bit, but definitely you are going to come back to that if if you're willing. Sounds good. Well, on a recent episode of your podcast called Negotiate Anything, you told a story of negotiating with your toddler <laughs> that I just love, yes. and it provides us with a really simple but powerful lesson in winning someone over. Would you share that story and, and that lesson with us?
1: Absolutely. Um, this was, is this was a fun one. It's fun now, looking back on it. <laughs> it really, <laughs> Maybe it wasn't fun at the time. <laughs> it wasn't fun at the time. Um, and, and so like I mentioned when I was talking about the book, the, um, the, the tool, the single tool that I give people is called Compassionate Curiosity. And um, it's three steps. First step is acknowledging emotions. Second step is becoming curious with compassion. And the third step is joint problem solving. And it's a framework you can put on any conversation. So the first step is often the most difficult part, and this is acknowledging emotions. And I learned it from (laughs) spending time with Kai, my lovely little son. He's going to be uh, three on Friday. Oh, happy birthday, Kai. (laughs) Yeah. So um, what I did was every morning, since uh, my wife's a doctor, she's busy, and I have a more flexible schedule than her. I pick up Kai from daycare, and I take Kai to daycare. So every morning is a hostile negotiation (laughs) with Kai about going (laughs) to daycare. And so we would start off the morning and he would tell me everybody he loved more than me. And so he would say, okay, I want mommy. And I said, Kai, mommy's not here. You know this. Mommy's at work. We need to go to school. Brush your teeth. No. And then he would cry. And I said, I was frustrated because I know he knows mommy's gone. I know he knows that. And she's not coming back. Mm -hmm. Why are we going through this every day? Then I realized on this specific morning that it was a serious problem that needed to be addressed. So we went through the regular thing. Where's mommy? Mommy's at work. I want mommy. Mommy's not here. Then he said, I want grandma. I was like, oh, that's kind of mean. Well, grandma's not here. (laughs) Um, Then he said, I want Uncle Kobe. Now, that, that hurt a little bit more because Kobe is my brother who lives about two hours away. And then this, one, this is the one that crossed the line. So he said, I want Buxton, which begs the question, who? Who's Buxton? Buxton. Buxton is my brother's dog. <laughs> and I was like, okay, we, we need to change something. So I, I read this book, How to Talk So Children Would Listen and Listen So Children Would Talk. And um, what they said is you need to... Acknowledge emotions in your children. I go, acknowledge emotions? I'm a lawyer. I get stuff done. (laughs) Okay, what is this about? (laughs) I don't have
0: time for any (laughs) emotions.
1: But I was was desperate at the time. So I did it. So Ty woke up in the morning, same old song and dance. I want mommy. And so instead of simply saying what was the right answer, the correct answer, which was mommy's not here, brush your teeth. I said, oh, you want mommy? Yeah, I want mommy you love mommy, don't you, Kai? Yeah, I love mommy. You wish she was here right now. And you would give her a big hug. Yeah, I would give her a big hug. How about this? How about you just say, I love you, mommy. And then he yelled, I love you, mommy. I was like, all right, Kai, you ready to brush your teeth? And he said, yeah, let's brush my teeth. Mm. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And so what he wanted, it wasn't a substantive request. It was an emotional request. He didn't want mommy, of course, yes, he did want mommy to come, but he knew it wasn't feasible. Even in his little two-year-old mind, he knew it wasn't feasible for her to come. But he still asked for it because he is replacing his emotional request with a substantive request. And so what I did there is I told him I acknowledged the emotion. So he wants his mother, he loves his mother, and that's important to him. And really what he wanted out of this interaction was for me to recognize that and to let him know that those feelings are legitimate. And so when I did that and he was satisfied, that request disappeared and he was willing to comply. And it's, it's interesting because people would say, okay, well, that's cool, Kwame, but that's a two-year-old. And then I would bring up this story. Uh, as a mediator, I recall one time a woman came in and she was complaining about the mistreatment from her landlords. She wanted to sue them for a thousand dollars and wanted them to uh, make the repairs and do the things that they should have been doing. And the property manager was there and made it clear to her that he apologized, said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize all of this was going on. We made a mistake and we'll we'll try to do better. And he did what was necessary and acknowledged her emotions. Mm -hmm. And when she felt satisfied emotionally, she dropped the case, $1,000 she was asking for. She dropped the case. Because she was replacing her emotional request with a substantive request, and that's what often happens in business. Because it's almost taboo uh, to talk about emotions, but when it really, when we really look into it, it's all about emotions. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, you're reminding me of a story. I, I don't know how long ago I was. I read it. It has to have at least been ten years about healthcare and physicians and when mistakes are made in healthcare that, you know, the the rate of patients suing the hospital or the doctor was fairly astronomical. And they found that in most cases, if the physician acknowledged the emotions of the person who felt wronged and apologized, the lawsuit went away. Mm hmm. And and that's such a double edged sword, because if the physician acknowledges, then there's a chance they might say, aha, I was right. Now I'm really going to sue you. But they found that more often than not, it was it was that emotional need that was satisfied, that acknowledgement that, hey, you know, you messed up and it hurt me. That that was that was enough for for many of the people.
1: Absolutely. And it's with that study, like you said, it's, it's dangerous mm-hmm. when you think about it in legal terms. I remember in um, one of my first classes, civil procedure, um, my, my professor said, never apologize. You can never apologize because that is an admission. It is admissible in court <laughs> for these reasons, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. But really that that advice flies in the face of psychology. And so if I'm blending my emotionally cognizant lawyer skills (laughs) together, (laughs) what I would say is definitely apologize, but do it in a way that it cannot be, Uh, don't do it in writing and don't make it (laughs) something that could show up in evidence. Um, So you could uh, satisfy both of those, uh, the emotional and the legal needs of the situation. So how might that sound? So first of all, you don't text it. You don't email it. Um, mm-hmm. You do it in person because, for instance, with Ohio, Ohio is what's called a single party consent state, meaning that if I'm in a conversation with you and I consent to recording the conversation, I can clandestinely record you. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier to tell if you're being recorded if you're in person. So have the conversation in person and tell the person, listen, I made a mistake and I apologize and I recognize that this had an impact on you. And I'm sorry. And then you can move on. And then if they want to continue, <laughs> then, then you can hire a lawyer to defend you <laughs> um, at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but seriously, it, it has such a significant impact because in everybody's mind there, they have an internal scale of justice. And of course, it's in many cases very self-serving. But the reality is, if somebody feels like they've been wronged, they need to do something to create balance in the world. And so what they've done is when they connect people to um, fMRI machines and give them an opportunity to get revenge on somebody in a laboratory setting, it triggers the pleasure centers in the brain. Mm -hmm. Dopamine everywhere. Feels good. But if you demonstrate true regret and take responsibility, then it alleviates a little bit of that psychological need. to to get back at you. And it has an incredible power when it comes to negotiation.
0: Wow. Thank you for bringing the neuroscience into that. Because it's something objective that we can look at and say, yes, there are legal implications, but our brain, you know, the brain science tells us something a little different. And there is a way that you can negotiate it. Because I also think of it as not just an issue of avoiding a lawsuit or asking for one, but of integrity you know, mm-hmm. of just being honest. And, right. and and it seems like that builds trust.
1: Exactly. And one last strategic note about it is if you are in the position where there is the possibility of legal ramifications, and you are the person who is wronged, if I were you, I would try to get to that person and have that conversation before they get a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Because if they've hired a lawyer, then they've already invested monetarily into it. The lawyer doesn't care about the emotional side. The lawyer wants to get paid, especially if they're working on a uh, contingency. Yes. So they want to make sure that they stoke the flames of uh, frustration (laughs) and anger.
0: And conflict.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Because with uh, with lawyers, the saying is more problems, more money. So, <laughs> you they they want that. So if you can get there before the lawyers do, then you're in a much better uh, negotiation position.
0: What is a it, Something like what? What is one lawyer in the ocean? A good start? <laughs> it's just something like that. You know? it's just, which is terrible. Which is terrible. But it's such a great segue here to my next question, which involves lawyers. <laughs> But it really is about people yeah. um, and humanity. You know, usually at this point, I would share a listener question. In this case, the question is coming from me. And um, and I want to tap into your expertise. Um, as you know, I'm relatively new to mediation and have already had some really fascinating experiences and some big lessons learned. And there's one situation that I'm thinking that you can help me with and and by extension help our listeners with, because I'm guessing we've all been in a similar situation. So I was recently involved in a session with a co-mediator and there were 9 people in the room which in itself was unusual for me but 4 of them were lawyers. And one of the lawyers was behaving in a really distracting way. He was clicking his pen and shuffling through papers, uh, having little sidebar whispering conversations with his client and fidgeting in his chair. And, you know, maybe he's just that way. You know, maybe he's a fidgety person because some people are. And but as I was witnessing it, it felt like sort of posturing, you know, like taking up space in the room and asserting power in some way. And I could tell that the other parties were distracted by his behavior as well. Now my co-mediator, who is much more experienced than me, did not address it, and I was wondering if one of us should have. So I'm sitting there listening and also feeling distracted like okay, do we say something? You know, what What should we do? And um, so the question that I have for you is about how to handle things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because like I said, this, this happens in everyday life too. It happened recently in a meeting where one woman was clicking her pen and it was mm-hmm. driving me crazy. And some people are more sensitive to that than others. I happen to be kind of hypersensitive to it. So those are two very different circumstances and two motivations probably for the behavior. But there's a similar distraction happening that creates an awkwardness in the conversation and in the room. So how can I say and, and and I'm just I don't know if this is exactly what I would say but of course how can I say stop it <laughs> um, you know without seeming petty or rude.
1: Well <laughs> that's a very long question so thanks for sticking with me. First of all the the response isn't stop it. You right. Slowly raise your your index finger into the air and then yell enough. Enough. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> no, no Obviously, it. that is a joke. Um, yeah, but that's good. Here's what I would do um, in one of the chapters in the book is talking about mindset. And um, when it comes to me in difficult conversations, because like I mentioned before, so I'm a practicing attorney. So I'm in these negotiations and as a mediator, I'm in the middle of these conversations a lot. And so one of the things that I adopted and I think this might be surprising to people, especially given the adversarial nature of law, is I always give somebody the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't add up. So in that situation, it it seems clear that the person was posturing. I'm going to approach it as if he wasn't. And it's a nervous twitch. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do it is not just for their benefit, but for my benefit, because when you are psychologically, when it comes to these conversations, those, those behaviors are seen as threats. Yeah. And when you perceive something as a threat, it registers in your amygdala and it triggers the fear response, fight, flight, or freeze, floods your body with stress hormones, um, elevates your blood pressure and your, your breathing rates, all of which are not good <laughs> for being in the moment in a, in a difficult conversation. It throws me off. So for my benefit, I want to make sure that I'm in the best psychological state possible. So I'm going to assume that he's not doing it intentionally. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that changes my tone when I do have that conversation uh, with the person, because I don't see it as an offense. I see it as, oh, let me help this person because he might not recognize what he's doing. And so I like to break down these conversations and just all human interactions to a a negotiation. So within that overall mediation, you can break that that goal into that, that entire conversation into a series of mini negotiations. And now this conversation with this guy about his body language is a mini negotiation. And so I'll approach it with the same compassionate curiosity framework. Acknowledge emotions, get curious with compassion, and then engage in joint problem solving. So as a mediator, what I've learned is that in many ways, you're kind of like a parent. Um, you know, if you're a parent of a two-year-old child and you have this thing where every day you you wear clown masks, the kid's going to grow up thinking like that's normal. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, my parents do it. Everybody does it. <laughs> I guess, it. <laughs> I guess that, that's what people do. Um, and so I, I think about it as a mediator. I say, well, I, this, is, this is my room. So what I say is normal is gonna be normal. And so I would say, if I were in that situation, I'd say, all right, well, I think we made some good progress. How about we do this? Let's take a quick 15 minute minute break and we'll come back. Mm-hmm. So everybody feels like they're getting a break. And then I'll pop in and talk to each party individually to touch base with them. So nobody feels like they're being singled out. Then when I talk to this guy, I would apply the compassionate curiosity framework. So acknowledging emotions. If I were in your situation, um, I would probably feel a little bit frustrated. Um, How are you you feeling right now? Yeah, well, I'm frustrated or antsy, blah, blah, blah. And so I'd give him an opportunity to to express his emotions and reflect that back to him. So step one, acknowledge emotions. Next, step two, get curious with compassion. So what are some of the barriers you're facing in this conversation? What do you think we could do to, uh, to make this a little bit more comfortable for you, that type of thing? And then with joint problem solving, it's just a brainstorming session. I know for me, um, sometimes I get distracted and it pulls me off my game when I see people clicking pens. I don't want to speak for other people, but I know it, it bothers me. Is there something else that you think we could do to try and make sure this doesn't happen in the future? And now we just swap ideas. So it becomes a mini negotiation and you can approach it in a way that's non-threatening and you want to do it in a way that's not threatening because if the person feels threatened, they're going to clam up and you don't get that free flow of communication, which is so vital for effective negotiation.
0: Yeah. And so calling them out in the room in the moment <laughs> is probably something that elevates the threat level.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I think especially when you think about the roles at play, because mm-hmm. for attorneys, this, these kind of conflicts, this is, this is just every day. But for clients, it's, it's kind of life or death. And so if the client perceives the attorneys as, as their gladiator, their soldier, they're mercenary. I pay you to be aggressive and get results for me. Mm-hmm. And so, if it seems like you, as the attorney, are in the the mediation and the mediator, who's supposed to be peaceful, is bullying you, it's like, oh my goodness, right? Who is this lawyer that I hired? So the lawyer is going to be thinking that, and the lawyer's response is probably going to be a little bit excessively aggressive because not only. Is he trying to save face in the situation? He also wants to show off and flex a little bit for his client too, yeah. to let yeah. him know that they're they're getting paid uh, for a reason.
0: Yeah. So it's kind of avoiding that tug of war of control exactly. <laughs> and, and posturing, because, yeah, they, we, we don't like to think of a mediator ending up sounding like a bully. But I, I've i heard people say, you know, they've been in situations where that's kind of happened. And that is absolutely something you want to avoid. And I would say it's something you will want to avoid, if, even if you're not a mediator. You know, you're just the other person in the conflict or in the conversation. Using your compassionate curiosity is a way, I think, to avoid Coming across as trying to control or bully the other person, right so to wrap things up um, and and thank you for answering my question for giving me some some good food for thought. my pleasure. and I'd love to know I, and I don't know if it's a negotiation tip, but I guess what is your favorite communication tip? How's that that you find makes the biggest difference for people?
1: I think when it comes to building trust and actually persuading. Uh, the best thing is to listen more than you speak, and I think mm-hmm. people say, "Oh, Kwame, that's so novel." Thank you, uh, but let me go a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> let me go a little bit deeper. So there's no method to the madness. So first of all, let me explain how to do it. So you do this by trying to set a goal, and so for me, my goal in conversation is to keep the breakdown of communication about 70-30, where I'm speaking only 30% of the time, but they're speaking 70% of the time. And the way you ensure this is by making requests for information. So either using open-ended questions, which are questions that start with who, what, where, when, and why, or um, what I call open-ended statements. Tell me more about this. Um, Help me understand blank. Those type of preambles lead them to tell you more information. And when it comes to the open-ended questions that you use, I suggest using what and how questions Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to why, because why can be uh, a little bit aggressive. That's what you tell a two-year-old mm-hmm. when they, may, they spill something <laughs> inexplicably. Why? Why? You know, so that's kind of ingrained in our mind um, because it comes with a little bit of a tone of judgment oftentimes. Yeah. So ask those questions, and then a few things happen. First of all, you're in control of the conversation. So, for instance, in this conversation, this interview we're having right now, Beth, I'm talking significantly more, but I am responding to the questions you ask. So even though I'm talking and giving all this information, I'm following your lead. Mm-hmm. So you actually have the control. Um, it creates an information asymmetry, which gives you more power relative to me because now you know more about the situation than me, because I'm giving you all of this information and it has the added bonus of the other person feeling like they have more control because they're talking. Mm-hmm. And so this makes them feel a little bit, have, uh, give you a little bit more trust and share more information. And so What's interesting is that when it comes to persuasion, it's not about convincing somebody else of your side. Um, It's about creating an atmosphere that allows the person to persuade themselves. And if you ask the right questions in the right way, you can get them to the point where they convince themselves and you don't need to make any points.
0: Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I just hit the expression, give them enough rope to hang
1: themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Which is so
0: terrible. Which is such a terrible. And I'm sure there's a more positive (laughs) spin that you just offered, but I had to say that. Yeah, I yeah. I I will
1: say, after all my negotiations, everybody has survived it um so (laughs) good yes
0: good outcomes for all yeah well thank you so much guami and thanks for um your sense of humor around all of that my pleasure (laughs) so how can people get in touch with you learn about your podcast and your new book which uh, is exciting and and huge congratulations on that thank you and everything else that you have to offer
1: yeah so check out the book nobody will play with me how to find confidence in conflict it'll be on amazon available on amazon and um For the month, uh, well, for the week of November 5th, Um, it'll be on a discount uh, for select people. So now that you know it, try and get it that week because it'll be on a heavy discount. Um, The other thing is to check out my podcast, Negotiate Anything. We have great thought leaders come on the show like Beth, um, (laughs) sharing their wisdom, which is great. Uh, Actually, Beth, you're the first person to be interviewed twice on the show. (sighs) Wow. Oh, I am so
0: honored. Thank you.
1: Yeah, my (laughs) pleasure. And so, um, and also connect with me on LinkedIn. I always respond to those invitations and and we can chat there. But definitely, if I were to prioritize any of those three, uh, check out the uh, check out the book.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I will make sure that there are links to all of those resources on the Web page for this episode. So um, I hope that people get in touch with you and absolutely download your book. I know I'm excited for it. So thank you for sharing and congratulations again. And um, until next time. Yeah.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate it. It It was fun.
0: Here's a closing call to action for you that draws on what Kwame shared with us. The next time you're in a situation where you're having difficulty connecting with someone and persuading them to take action, consider the compassionate curiosity approach that he shared with us. Listen and watch for the other person's emotions and acknowledge them. It might sound something like, you look like something's bothering you. Or you could ask them to name it by asking something like, What's happening with you right now? Remember, tone of voice and body language can make or break those statements. So take care to share your thoughts in a manner that shows you are truly interested in their emotions. Then get curious with compassion. Ask the person what might make the situation more productive or comfortable for them. Then brainstorm solutions that take into consideration the emotions that have been expressed and do your best to point the discussion towards a resolution. Often, the identification and acknowledgement of emotions creates a massive shift in the energy of a conversation. It's not all that's needed, but it is foundational to moving a discussion forward. In short, acknowledge emotion, be compassionately curious, and brainstorm solutions. Emotion, curiosity, solutions. Put that into practice. And I'd be interested to know what kind of difference you experience in your relationships. And thank you so much, Kwame, for bringing that framework to our awareness and offering that up for us. If you enjoy this podcast, I really appreciate your shares, ratings, and reviews. A special thanks to KR Podcasts, who recently posted an iTunes review sharing, If you're ever struggling to find the right words, this is an excellent short-form podcast to help you with ideas. It is one of Beth's superpowers. I can't even begin to tell you how much I love that. Thank you so much, KR Podcasts, and I am so glad that you're enjoying the show. If you want to add your opinion to the mix and help other listeners know what they can expect from this podcast, you can find links that tell you how to subscribe and leave a review in the footer of any page at howcanisaythis.com. I also welcome your feedback and questions through the contact form on the website. I would really appreciate hearing from you. Do you have a communication conundrum that you'd like to share for a future episode? I often will include a listener question in the conversation, whether it's an interview or one I do myself. And you can find the online submission form for that at howcanisaythis.com. You can also leave a text or a voicemail 24-7 at 562-704-6643. You'll find that number on the Submit a Question page on the website. And finally, you can send me your question directly to beth at howcanisaythis.com. No matter how you submit a question, you always have the choice to be completely anonymous if you like. This is Beth Below, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thanks so much for joining me today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously.